Hi, welcome back to Plans Plenty Zuzu. It's our very last one of the year. Recording literally right now on New Year's Eve 2023. We know how to party. <laughs> yeah. How are you, Steph? I'm really good. I had a lovely Christmas. Me and my fiancé, which is you, went to my parents and we hung out with my parents and my brothers and my grandparents and I had an overall lovely time. And then we went to your families and hung out with your parents and siblings and our nieces. And, and had a lovely time. Had a lovely it was, time. It was a lovely Christmas this year, wasn't it? It felt like really relaxed, really nice. Really family oriented. Yeah, got to go to Panto with your mum. Oh, you did, That was yeah. one of my highlights, I'm not going to lie to you. Bonding. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I feel like that's um, becoming quickly becoming an annual tradition, you and my mum off to Panto. Yeah, sometimes we'll bring you as well. We did last year. <laughs> yeah, but it's very kind of you. Going forward, it's, like, it's not a deal breaker for me. <laughs> yeah, that was lovely. Really do a lot, did we? For Christmas? It was just hanging out, just chilling, me. family time. It was really nice. I feel like it's kind of the Christmas that everyone wants, where you are just in your pyjamas, like, hanging. Yeah, it's the kind of one time of the year where I can actually effectively relax and I'm not stressing out if I've really? not left the house by 11am. You know what I mean? Yeah, you did well, actually. I think one day we didn't leave till one. Mm. And I was like, damn. There were some days where we didn't leave at all, I think. No. You would not cope with that at no, all. No, I wouldn't. But then when we came back, I massively crashed and that is what I did the first day. Yeah, to be fair. You also went to Amsterdam. I did, yeah, just before Christmas. Me and some of my lovely friends from university went to Amsterdam for my friend Em's birthday, which was very, very fun. Amsterdam's a lovely place. It's absolutely stunning. We went to the Tulip Museum, so I could actually see some of the kind of artefacts about Semper Augustus, which we've added to Planty Planty Zuzu before. Yeah, you listen to our previous episode if you want to hear about the tulip wars in Amsterdam. Really good museum. So if you're ever in Amsterdam, go to the museum. It's really, really fab. Brought copious amounts of tulip-based paraphernalia. I'll bring back to you. Yeah, I got my Christmas present from you this year. A large selection of Amsterdam gifts, <laughs> which I'm thrilled with. <laughs> and some very nice antique, sort of old botany books. And some bird stickers from Claire. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Claire um, Spiller, if you like birds and stickers. So we went to... Tulip Museum went to Artis, which is a zoo over there. It's a really lovely old zoo. Now fifth oldest zoo in the world. Is it? It's the New Bristol Zoo. It's the New Bristol Zoo, yeah. It's yeah, they've taken our position as fifth oldest. Got a very similar feel to Bristol Zoo. It's got a lovely kind of old zoo feel, but with a sense that they're modernising as well. They've just built a brand new lion enclosure, which is fantastic. Aww. They've still got a few old kind of pit-style enclosures that used to help hold things like bears, mm. but are now holding red pandas and, and mandrills and things a bit more suited to those kind of enclosures. Yeah. But it's an absolutely gorgeous little zoo, absolutely fantastic. I only got to spend an afternoon or so there, so I'm excited to go back at some point and explore yeah. properly. Went to the Botanic Garden there as well, Hortis, which is mm. just across the road from the zoo pretty much. And that was lovely as well, very nice little little collection. So yeah, it was quite a planty planty zoo zoo weekend I had, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, well, we'll have to go back soon and then I can see it, see it all too. I've been to Amsterdam before, but it was very much like the main tourism attractions mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'd love to go back and do the zoo and the gardens, that'd be lovely. Yeah, definitely. I can't recommend them enough. They were absolutely fab. It was a lovely time. That brings us off for the, the last time of this year, although it's, when it's released, it'll be the first episode of next year. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, to our species of the episode um, and this is finally our last episode that has interviews from Global Bird Fair 2023. Mm. It's only taken us six months to work through them <laughs> but yeah this is our final episode and so we have got two more people at Global Bird Fair so I will get started then. Mm. 
So our first species of the episode was suggested to us by Lou Sykes from A Focus on Nature. She's a creative director there, so when we were at Global Bird Fair, one of the things I was doing was looking after the Focus on Nature tent stand as well, because I am their careers and mentoring officer. Mm -hmm. And a couple of episodes ago, we heard from their other director, Rosie. And so Lou decided, or Lou agreed to be on the podcast as well. So let's hear what Lou decided to add. I'm here with Lou. So Lou, tell us a little bit about why you're here at Global Bird Fair 2023. I'm here with a focus on nature and we are trying to bridge the gap to get young people into the nature sector. It's really important to get young people involved. What exactly are you doing to help them find out where they want to go? So we do that in two ways. We have a website which has a careers hub and information on our mentoring programme. But we also are on Instagram, Twitter and various other social media pages. So you can find information and links there as to what you want to do going forwards. Fabulous. Thank you very much and every week we add a couple of species of plant or animal to planty planty zuzu so which would you like to add and why oh that's a great question i'm gonna go with a chinese pangolin one i think they're really cool and really cute but also there's something really satisfying about a creature that as an act of self-defense decides it's a great idea to roll up into a ball fantastic that's absolutely brilliant thank you very much Lou. amazing so lou has decided to add the chinese pangolin which is very, very exciting. To be honest, I'm surprised it's taken us this long to talk about a pangolin because I feel like pangolins are very, very big, especially in our world. If you're talking about nature and conservation, a pangolin comes up quite often these days, which it never used to. I feel like it's a big poster child for conservation these days because of all the challenges it faces, which we will get onto. But first, a bit of an introduction. There are actually eight species of pangolin. Oh. Four being found in Asia and four being found in Africa. I didn't know that. I thought it was just one. No, there's eight eight different types. And they were actually thought to have diverged from each other about 41 million years ago. Wow. So kind of as Gondwana, that big old landmass split up, mm. they diverged. They're all in the order Folidota, which comes from the ancient Greek meaning clad in scales. Ooh. And they're all in the Manidae family, which is the only family in Folidota. And all of those Asian species are in the genus Manis, which means spirits. Oh. Which is cool, right? Yeah, that's very... They have a lot... I'm sure we'll get into it. They have quite a lot of spiritual connections, pangolins. I don't go into that at all. I'll shut up then. <laughs> um, and the name pangolin comes from the Malay word penguling, which means one who rolls up. <gasps> I'm a pangolin. I absolutely love. Aww. One who rolls up. That's so nice. Why don't we have words like that? We have sentences like... We have phrases like that, such as one who rolls up. But we don't have one word that means that. <laughs> <laughs> Insightful. You're welcome. These are also known as scaly anteaters. So if all of those words didn't give you a clue, they are covered in scales. But they're also fairly anteater shaped. They look like an anteater. They've got that long pointed face. They've got the long nose, long prehensile tails as well. But they're covered in scales. Pangolins are actually fairly similar to tamanduas, which we covered in a few episodes ago that Rosie added. But whereas they're called the lesser anteater... These are known as scaly anteaters, but they've effectively got the same kind of body shape. But the Chinese pangolin, at least, is a little bit smaller. They've got kind of grey scales, whereas other pangolins, especially the ones you see in Africa, have tend to have browner scales. And they're just under about a metre long at their longest, of which about a third of that is their tail. So they're fairly small little animals, oh. the Chinese pangolins. And they only weigh up to about seven kilograms. 
compared to the giant pangolin, which is probably one you see quite a bit, which weighs up to 40 kilograms. So they can be a lot bigger. How long are they? They're about up to about a metre and 70 centimetres, 170 centimetres or so. not huge, to be fair. Not huge, but a lot heavier as well. Mm. But yeah, that's enough to be considered giant as a pangolin. <laughs> so, obviously, given its name, a Chinese pangolin you'll find across Nepal, India, Bhutan, Bangladesh, China and Taiwan. Mainly living in different types of forests, so cloud forests, bamboo forests, etc. But you will also find them in some grasslands as well. And their diet, again, very similar to the tamandua. They've got these big long claws that they use to dig into those termite nests. And their huge long tongue, they stick down and get all the insects from within. It's nice and sticky so they can kind of slurp out all those termites, all those ants. But their tongue is actually attached near their pelvis. Uh. And it can be almost half the length of their body. They've also got special muscles in their mouth to stop ants escaping once they're in there. And they can shut their ears and nostrils to stop any insects getting in while they're attacking and defending their territory uh, from their incredibly long tongue and big snooty nose. That's so funny because to an ant's perspective it's probably a really scary snake. Yeah, it's not going to be a fun time is it, I don't imagine. Yeah, they're probably like, oh no, it's that weird snake that's really sticky. (laughs) And then it, only when they are actually make it into the mouth, they know it's a pangolin. It must be scary to be an ant. It, they've got, they have to deal with a lot. It makes sense why they're so aggressive. Yeah. Anyway, this is cool. They've also, because they don't have teeth, they've got keratin spikes in their stomachs. So keratin being the same thing that their that fingernails are made out of, hair. and the hair are made out of, that pangolin scales are made out of, oh, which okay. we'll come to. They've got little spikes made up of that in their stomach mm. effectively acts a little bit like a bird's gizzard to help crush up and crunch all of the insects that make it into their stomach. Okay. And just like birds as well, they will eat stones and stuff to help grind those insects up. But yeah, yeah spiky insides of the stomach. Yeah. Which is weird. Very I really strange. like it. And all of this, all these adaptations to eating insects, help them eat an estimated 70 million insects a year. That's so many. That's uh, mainly made up of ants and termites, but they will supplement it with like other insects, flies, bees, um, glowworms, things like that. They'll oh. kind of eat all of those uh, larvae as well. And they'll use those claws to dig large burrows to sleep in during the day, and they'll nest in those as well. Some of them have actually been found to be large enough that a human can crawl inside and stand up. Wow, that means many people have tried that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, to be fair, if that's a Chinese pangolin that's doing that, but certainly pangolins mm. uh, can do that. It might be the bigger species, but yeah, they can make these huge kind of complex nests underground with chambers and, and things like that. Cool. And the Chinese pangolin, definitely though, will spend winter months in some of these deep burrows because they'll dig them next to a termite nest. So they've got a constant supply of food, so they can basically curl up, and every now and then, go to a different chamber, have a snack, go back, curl up, so they're not spending too much time outside of these burrows during the winter when it's going to be a little bit colder. And because of this, they've got a bit of a legend. So in, in kind of Chinese folklore, pangolins are said to travel all around the world underground. And so actually in the Cantonese language, the name for pangolin translates to the animal that digs through the mountain. Ooh, that's very cool. This is one animal with just so many different names. It's Brilliant, I love it. All very descriptive. Yeah, but yeah, so that's kind of how it survives the winter. That's one of its mechanisms for staying alive against the weather. Mm. But it's also got an incredible mechanism for staying alive and protecting itself against predators. 
those big old scales. Yeah. So it's got rows of overlapping scales with hair that pokes between them, which is something that only Asian pangolins have. African oh, okay. pangolins don't. Hmm. That's a way of splitting them up. And those scales, like I said, are all made of keratin. So same thing as rhino horn as well. They act as a nice protection. They can roll up in a ball, hence where they get their name from, which I didn't know is called volvation. What, when they roll up in a ball? Yeah, rolling up in a ball to protect yourself, like a pangolin, like a hedgehog, etc. Volvation. Volvation. I'm glad I know that word. I'm yeah. sure it will come in handy. It's quite a fun word, Yeah. Uh, as words go. But that's where the fun ends. Oh, okay. No more. Because just like rhino horns... Pangolin scales have mm. meant lots of bad news for pangolins, unfortunately. Mm. We were saying that they've become a bit more mainstream and a bit more kind of well-known about for all the wrong reasons. They are mainly known because they are the most trafficked animal in the world. Uh, they are a really big commodity that is smuggled around the world as part of the illegal wildlife trade. And something I saw today, which devastated me it's estimated that a pangolin is poached every five minutes <gasps> that's devastating how appalling is that that just really puts it into perspective yeah. it all comes down to those lovely scales that they've got which are believed to have medicinal properties and several uh, traditional medicines so in china and vietnam it's believed that they might be able to cure cancer and asthma as well and their meat is also considered to be a bit of a delicacy it's just these things that have perpetuated throughout cultures over yeah. such a long time and so over the past decade, because of these kind of myths perpetuating, over one million have been poached oh over the past God. decade, with them being found in these huge numbers during raids and seizures. So back in 2013, a smuggling ship ran aground in the Philippines, and they found 10,000 kilograms <gasps> of pangolin meat. Oh no, not even a line. And in 2016, a man was arrested for having 650 dead pangolins frozen in his house in Indonesia. So it's, yeah, it's a huge thing. They've also got things like habitat loss and deforestation in their range countries, like lots of animals, are, they're facing threats from that side as well. Mm. And so they're actually extinct in several provinces that they were used to be found in. So their range is already a lot smaller than it was. But then, if you remember back to a few years ago, they were also implicated in coronavirus. Oh, yeah. Because as their meat was a delicacy, they were often eaten by people. And early research suggested that the coronavirus that originated from bats mm. might have been found in pangolins, and that might have been a way that it spread to humans. Right. So humans eating pangolins over in Asia may have caught coronavirus, and that may have been implicated in kind of starting the pandemic. Oh, does that still hold up today? No, okay. not at all. So no, that research, research was completely flawed, and it was unlikely to be the case, and actually that probably didn't, lead to any human cases mm. because of what was found in the pangolin because of that testing wasn't accurate in the end. Yeah. But conservationists are massively concerned because the chance that that may have complete, a complete kind of slaughter of pangolins to reduce transmission. I couldn't actually find any data to support that. I don't know whether the research on numbers has been done or been published yet. But yeah, there was a lot of concern at the time that people would go out and, and kill pangolins specifically to stop See, I was wondering whether that would have gone the other way and it would have been people going like, oh, we don't want to eat them anymore. They carry diseases. This I started this coronavirus and therefore demand goes down and therefore mm -hmm. less poaching. But if there's no data yet, yeah. Yeah. keep an eye on them papers. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, basically, they've had a lot of things over the past few years that have just been stacked up against them. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, they're not doing very well. All 
eight species are threatened and the Chinese pangolin is one of three that is labelled as critically endangered. One of three pangolin species? Yes. Oh, sad. So they are in quite a lot of trouble. Mm. And the IUCN Species Survival Commission pangolin specialist group have mobilised quite significantly to help reduce the demand for pangolins, but also to kind of mobilise groups to help protect them, to basically kind of figure out how to stop it and how to minimise the wildlife trade and things like that, how to work with communities and kind of educate people about how to live with pangolins and how to kind of reduce the consumption and the demand for those things. China's put in loads of legislation to attempt to protect them as well because 80% of people in China that were surveyed want pangolins to be protected. I think often China gets a really bad name when it comes to conservation issues and lots of people are really quick to blame mm. China. But actually, the kind of large contingents of the population actually wants to look after these species and protect this biodiversity as well. So China has pushed through quite a lot of legislation to actually attempt oh, to uh, protect pangolins, as well as them being listed as Appendix 1 on CITES, which is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. So that's basically the laws and rules that govern yeah. what animal parts can move between countries. Mm. It's basically those pangolin parts... No. Okay. There's no legal way to move them through. Oh. So in theory, that CITES Appendix 1 level protection means that it's easier to prosecute for people trading. But in practice, we know that's not actually the case. Lots of these kind of trafficking rings go to incredibly high levels and are, are really difficult to actually stop and mm. kind of police. So you've got charities like Traffic working to combat the illegal wildlife trade. They've identified 159 trafficking routes wow. that they're trying to shut down. So the scale of the problem is absolutely huge. But there are currently loads of different NGOs and zoos working to actually kind of protect pangolins. So I have picked three to mention. So you've got Save Pangolins who run behaviour change and awareness campaigns about pangolins to kind of tell people that have maybe never heard of a pangolin about what they're going through and to help kind of raise a profile of them, mm. which means that people are less likely to buy things with pangolins in and kind of reduce that demand as well. They also manage the Pangolin Crisis Fund, the Pangolin Champions Grants and Innovation Grants as well to basically provide a load of different funding routes for people or organisations that are trying to help pangolins out in the wild mm. and enable their work to progress and basically kind of have as much impact as possible which sounds really amazing another one i heard of a few years ago was save vietnam's wildlife now these guys do amazing work they're absolutely fantastic they're the largest organization in vietnam working primarily with pangolins they also do loads with absolutely tons of other wildlife around there in vietnam but specifically with pangolins since they were founded in 2014 they've rescued more than 1,650 pangolin individuals and released over 60% of those back into the wild. Wow, that's brilliant. Which is just phenomenal. It's absolutely brilliant. What amazing work. So, yeah, they're, they're bringing in these, these pangolins that they, they seize or they find out in the wild in, in traps or, or whatever, and they'll raise them back up as well, make sure they're perfectly healthy, then release them back. They'll breed them as well, and they also deploy anti-poaching teams to actually go out there and shut down illegal activity and, and prevent those pangolins being taken from the wild in the first place. 
so amazing. they have an amazing impact out there it's fantastic mm. and then one of the many zoos working with them as well is zoological society of london oh. um so london zoo and whipsnade their charity works out around nepal doing community-based conservation so they work with the local community to help people achieve their career goals and to kind of upskill people to get into livable wage employment to mm. make sure they don't have to work in the illegal wildlife trade to fund their lifestyle so they can actually get it through getting income that doesn't rely on negative impacts on wildlife yeah um, which is, is fantastic and they also train law enforcement staff with the skills and the intelligence to actually prosecute traffickers so like i said make it hopefully a little bit easier to actually shut down these rings through the normal means of going through the law and going through the courts and things like that mm. and they work with everyone at kind of every level of the legal procedures so judges police officers etc trying to specifically find and prosecute higher level traders and the kind of people right at the top of these trafficking rings yeah because that's where they can have the most impact by shutting down the entire circuit basically yeah there's a lot of places doing a lot of work there i mean there's going to be absolutely even more than that so one thing I do recommend if you want to know a little bit more about pangolins and some of the work going into saving them is going to listen to our lovely friend Jack. Mm-hmm. He's got a podcast called Pangolin, the Conservation Podcast, yeah. uh, which has diversified and talks about all sorts of different conservation issues these days, but specifically started talking about the pangolins and talking to lots of different people involved in their kind of conservation. And so I'd recommend to hear in depth about some of the projects working with pangolins, going to give him a nice little listen because he is a delightful man and his podcast is absolutely brilliant yeah. and features some really brilliant con- conversations as well. So yeah, that's the Chinese pangolin. Now in terms of zoos, as you can imagine, critically endangered species, do you think they're in loads of zoos? No. No. But they are actually in a few more than I expected. So you can find them in six zoos in the world, Chinese pangolins, two of which are in Europe, four of which are in Asia, mm. which makes sense. Mm. And basically, they're really tricky to keep in zoos, which is why they aren't kept a bit more often, because they've got a really specific diet, those termites and those ants, so they've not often done very well. They seem to be quite fussy, so when people were bringing them back in, in zoos over the past couple of hundred years, they couldn't get the diet right, and so a lot of these pangolins died fairly early. Um, but some have been known to live up into their 20s in captivity, which is the best kind of guess that we've got for how long they can actually live, because... They're so elusive out in the wild, we don't really know how old they tend to get um, out in these kind of wild habitats. Some have done really, really well. The ones in zoos seem to be doing really, really well at the minute. So Leipzig and Prague in Europe have them. And then in Asia, you've got these four different zoos, including Taipei Zoo, which are world leaders in pangolin conservation and management. So they are absolutely brilliant. I want to go there. They've got about 13 pangolins. And I saw an article as well that said that they've got 13 pangolins that they look after, but actually, as those pangolin populations have started to build back up in Taiwan, because Taiwan seems to be a really big stronghold for them, Mm. because they've put lots of effort into conserving them, now actually they get wild pangolins walking through their site, coming to eat ants and stuff on the zoo site, which is amazing, isn't it? That's so funny. Which is absolutely fantastic. They're the source of pretty much all of Europe's pangolins. So Prague's pangolins came from Taipei. A little bit like Chinese zoos lending out pandas, Taipei kind of does the same thing with pangolins. 
Um, okay. So they can lend them out, so they can breed and raise awareness of them in different countries. It's gone really well, because Prague actually bred their pangolins this oh, year. Brilliant. So earlier this year, they had a little baby pangolin. Oh. Or a pango pop. Oh. Which is genuinely the name for a baby pangolin. Pango pup. A pango pup. Is it all one word? Oh. How incredible is That's that? so cute. So, they've had a huge amount of success. They're really big advocates for them, so they do lots of work on site, but also from lots of conservation work out in the wild for them as well. They recently opened a new tropical house, which they called the Pangolin Dome. So it's a big glasshouse dome that's shaped like a pangolin. Again, to raise a nice bit of awareness. So, oh wow! Look at that! How amazing is that? They've got, got the, the kind of that's curve, fun. so it's meant to represent a pangolin that's all rolled up. Ironically, they don't actually keep their pangolins in it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's mainly for South American species, but I still thought it was pretty fantastic. I think they are a very big draw for, for Prague and Leipzig zoos um, because people love them and they are so rare. But yeah, not something you massively see in zoos. And when you do see them, they're kind of kept in these fairly big foresty habitats, kind of like what you'd expect a tamandua to be in. But the problem with the Chinese pangolin is they are nocturnal. Ah. So sometimes you see them in nocturnal houses as well. I'll be honest with you, I've not thought at all about how to put it in our zoo. Yeah, you're joining me um, in my method. Yeah. Activate brain now. So, in terms of keeping the Chinese pangolin in Plants Plenty Zuzu, we've already got one species that uses burrows and is found in the Asian subcontinent, so across parts of India, which you do find the Chinese pangolin across the, the northern parts of, of India as well. So, I mean, we love a nocturnal house. We love a slightly different way of seeing animals. So... The striped hyena that we introduced way back in our second episode, I think. Yeah. He has got a lovely little underground burrow that you can spot mm. him in, going onto an outside paddock. So I think we're going to do something similar for the pangolin. Actually, have a tunnel going underground, whereas uh, along some part of the the tunnel you can see a striped hyena in there. <gasps> big burrow and then we're going to have a little section for a little burrow for a Chinese pangolin as well. I'm sure there'll be other animals that we can add into our little, little underground tunnel of Asian species. I need but... to find some underground Asian plants. Yes, oh that'd be lovely. In this tunnel we'll have this little burrow for this Chinese pangolin so even if during the day he can head in there and you can spot him and then I want an indoor and outdoor bit at surface level so you can see him through a big kind of glass-fronted enclosure with some really big tropical trees in there. You nice. can climb around as well. Some of those fake termite mounds that you see in Antita enclosures as well to try mm. and get those termites in, in in as much of a natural way as possible. But then a little bit of outside space as well. That so sounds I, amazing. I think a nice little underground bit connected to all the other underground habitats you will see and a nice little house built on top specifically for him um, or for them, if we have a breeding pair as well. Of course we will. And I want panga pups. Panga pups, yeah. The, the number one goal. Number one. Nice few panga pups. Yeah. I think that's how we'll show them off in Plenty Plenty Zuzu. Amazing. Nice little flagship species for us. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you. I feel like I've learned loads about pangolins because I've only, like you say, they've been so much more on your public consciousness in terms of their relationship with um, conservation and all the struggles, mm. but like... I didn't know much about them as the, all these eight species and everything. So well, this thing, that's only one of eight species as well. So I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I mean... Now I need to choose the other seven. Yeah. <laughs> we could, I could literally put hours of content out about pangolins. Yeah. They are 
so so interesting so incredible just absolutely brilliant amazing well thank you very much You're very welcome i think it's your turn now isn't it yeah right so now it's my turn uh, and once again doing an animal rather than a plant but i'm doing a reptile which is more planty than animally i've decided <laughs> it makes sense in my head and this was introduced by Ryan from Into the Wild, which is another amazing podcast that we're big fans of. And met him at Global Bird Fair and he agreed to do this, which was really, really nice. Absolutely. He's, he's absolutely lovely, isn't he, Ryan? He's yeah. fantastic. So here is Ryan introducing his species. I'm at Global Bird Fair with Ryan. Do you want to tell me a bit about why you're here? Well, I'm part of Into the Wild podcast. We were here at the podcast station supported by Swarovski Optics and we were also doing our live Nature Room 101 show, which I think I am okay to say went very well now. I've spoken to a few people that were here yesterday. I was unsure at first, but people have come up to me and said they really enjoyed it. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's brilliant. And as you know, Planty Planty Zoo Zoo is a fictional <laughs> zoo slash botanical gardens. So wondering what animal or plant you would like to add so I'm a, I'm a big reptile guy so I like to have reptiles and my go-to reptile is crocodilian one of the animals that really captivated me when I was like about 19 20 when I saw it in a zoo somewhere was a saltwater crocodile just to see the sheer size blew me away because as a British guy you kind of see it on TV and you're like oh that looks big but then when you see it in real life you're like holy that is huge but I'm not gonna pick that I'm gonna go with a gorilla because you don't see them very often like you kind of see them in America zoos or you might see them in Australia but you don't get them in UK or Europe very often so I put a gorilla in because they stand out and within that family of like crocodilians they're so specific and niche with what they do and I've been reading a lot about the human wildlife conflicts to do with gorillas which people kind of overlook compared to other crocodilian species so yeah I would put that in because I would love to see more of them and also you can get super cool enclosures to do with them you can do like nice freshwater enclosures nice kind of theming around it as well so I, I would put them in 100% perfect thank you so much Great, so I was really happy that he chose this because I really love gharils. I think for a very long time, up until like 19 or so, I was aware of crocodiles, I was aware of alligators, and all other crocodilians just didn't exist in my mind. And then got to know about caimans and gharils as well. And yeah, it's just a whole range of them that are really interesting. So let's get into this. Latin name for gharils, Gavialis gangeticus. Ooh. Or Gangeticus. Gangeticus maybe makes more sense. Because it's on the Ganges. Mm. So, species of crocodilian. Garrels are sexually dimorphic. So, the adult males have this big bulbous growth at the tip of their snout, a very thin snout. And this growth is called agara. It's named after the Indian pot that it resembles. Ooh. So, they have a pot called agara. So, they called this lump, this big lump agara. And that's actually where the name Garil comes from. Amazing. Right, that's why I started with that. Uh, so the Gara has lots of different functions. It acts as a visual sex indicator and it also is a sound resonator during vocalisations. Ooh, so, like an amplifier. So they are native to the northern part of the Indian subcontinent. So that's India, Bhutan, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Nepal. And they are one of the largest crocodilian species. Males actually reach up to six metres in length. This surprised me as well. In my head, for some reason, I think probably because I haven't seen one in real life, but I have seen, you know, crocodiles. Mm. Um, I, I thought they were smaller. I thought they were a lot smaller than, like, your average crocodile alligator. But wrong. This is my favourite thing about crocodiles. Um, one of my favourite things to tell 
kids at the zoo mm. is if you took a gharial that's six metres long and stood him on the tip of his nose yeah. or the tip of his tail, the other end would be taller than a giraffe. Oh my gosh, that's so How weird. obscene is that? That's so obscene. I would love to see one. Oh, that's really cool. Thank you. They are the most thoroughly aquatic crocodilian, whereas crocodiles, alligators will haul themselves out of water sometimes, move around a bit. Uh, the garo actually only leaves the water for basking and building nests on moist sandbanks. Ooh. So they are almost always in the water. Oh, wow. They're a lot shyer as well. Garos are essentially, like to someone that's not, you know, that's more a plant person, they look like a crocodile slash alligator, which look exactly the same to me, <laughs> mostly. Uh, except they have this really long, thin snout. So it's not like that triangular thing that you sort of think of when you think of a crocodile. It's really, really thin. Um, it's really well adapted for catching fish, which is its primary diet. has 110 interlocking teeth. Whoa. So many teeth. That's loads of teeth. I know. More than me. Is that more than other crocodilians? Most species of crocodiles have 60 to 70 teeth, but some may have up to 100. So actually, it probably is more, on average, than at least crocodiles. Very cool. Garrills inhabit riverine habitats with deep, clear, fast-moving water and steep, sandy banks. They also like uh, still deep pools, which are f- they are formed at sharp river bends. Yeah. So the water, like on the, I'm trying to remember my geography class, like the water on the outside. I'm trying to think of the rapids at Centre Parks. The water on the outside flings you around a bend, <laughs> <laughs> but the water on the inside is slow. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. But yeah, so they hang out at river bends a lot. Historically, garrels have been found in four river si- systems, and that is the Indus in Pakistan, the Ganges. India and Nepal, the Mahanadi, India, and the Brahmaputra. That is in Bangladesh, India, and Bhutan. Unfortunately, like the pangolin, so it's kind of funny because the pangolin, the pangolins you're talking about, similar countries, a lot of them, and also critically endangered, same as the caril, critically endangered, yeah. They have become extinct in many areas where they used to live, and they are limited to only 2% of its historic range today. Wow. And that's since like the 1930s or something. It's really... 2%? Mm, not great. That is dire. I know. Sad episode, to mm. be honest. So there have been past conservation successes, but the species is still really close to extinction. In terms of their numbers, there are fewer than 200 adults in India and fewer than 200 in Nepal, and are thought to be extinct in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan and Myanmar. So when I was naming those countries earlier, that's like their historic range. But yeah, there's really, really very, very few. So the population has declined by approximately 98% in less than a century. So we have lost a lot of garrils. They face a lot of different threats. A big one is habitat loss. This is mostly due to sand mining. So the illegal Mm -hmm. extraction of sand from riverbanks. It's also depletion of fish numbers due to overfishing. So it's kind of all your typical culprits. Um, but also accidental entanglement in fishing nets. Yeah. Really sad one. There was a male garrel in Nepal's Chitwan National Park in June 2023, so mm-hmm. this year. So if you're listening to this, it's last year, not the right time. <laughs> garrel was found with a fishing net wrapped around its snout and a hook piercing its abdomen. Oh. So that was very sad. And the, the garrel was a male which is particularly devastating for the species because the natural sex ratio in garrils is skewed towards female. 
So the death so the males of males are even more important. Yeah. We'll come back to conservation though, because you know what? It's not all bad news. There is some good bits. Ooh. But we're going to go back to some more garral information first. Building the suspense. I spoke earlier about when they don't really come out on land, but when they do, they just sort of bask. Basking is where they exhibit gaping behaviour. And this is where they rest with the jaw. Connor's demonstrating. Uh, it's where they rest with their jaws wide open. And... They are very good parents. They are perhaps most dedicated parents among reptiles. The females lay 20 to 95 eggs in nests close together. 20 to 95? Yeah. That's big range. range. Big range. And you think that many eggs, get your numbers up. <laughs> yeah. Why are there only 400 of you yeah. left if you're Keep having 90 it. eggs? <laughs> Do it more. The females lay the eggs in nests close together and guard them from the river. When the eggs hatch, the hatchlings together form a large crush. How cute is that? So both males and females guard these crushes from predators. And I've got a lovely picture of a male with the crush. <gasps> and they are, there's a load of baby gharials and they are riding on a adult gharial's back and he's, head. He's like a little island. He is an island. Um, and then there's a bunch of baby gharials swimming around. Wow, next and so many gharials. Yeah, so they're really good parents and it's both um, sexes. Yeah, and so that picture... At the first sign of danger, the hatchlings rush to the safety of just the nearest adults. They just climb all over it. Oh my god, they're like little scaly ducklings. Yeah! I love them. So despite the fact that they're these big crocodilians, they're actually not a danger to humans just because they are so shy. Mm -hmm. They will just run away. And I don't think their snouts could really... I mean, obviously it would hurt, but it's not like if a crocodile gets you, it would just like crush yeah. you. I feel like because it's so thin... It's maybe not as much of a threat. It would like really hurt your arm or something. There's such little conflict between gharals and humans. There's actually only been one fatality, one known fatality due to gharals, um, and it wasn't cons the human wasn't consumed. There's a lot of very cool folklore and mythology. Uh, it was qu quite difficult to unpick because when I the information that I could get on the internet, it's like quite a lot of religious text, and I'd read like a sentence or two. But in order to understand that sentence, I it felt like I needed knowledge of certain books or certain things that I just couldn't really do. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've just tried to filter it down to some of the more basic aspects. So in Hindu mythology, the Garil is considered the vehicle of the river deity Ganja and of the wind and sea deity Varuna. So it's how they get around. Which sounds nice. <laughs> in Indian mythology, the goddess Ganja, who is the personification of the Ganges River, is often depicted riding a creature with the head of a garil, but the body of a fish or a dolphin, depending mm -hmm. on where you look online. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That it's like a hybrid. Yeah, it takes in the, the Ganges River dolphin as well, which is yeah. another big aquatic it's mammal. Easy. Yeah. yeah. The earliest known depictions of the Garil date back to the Indus Valley civilization, which I, I'm assuming you know a lot about. Uh, so that was, do you actually? No. Oh, okay. So that was approximately 4,000 years ago. Seals and tablets from the era show Garils with fish in their mouths and surrounded by fish, so this all suggests that they are really important in culture and mythology at the time. Local people living near rivers have attributed mystical and healing powers to the Garil. So this is kind of positive and negative, the negative aspect is that some of its body parts have uh, traditionally been used in indigenous medicine. For instance, the Thari people believe that burning the gara, which is the, the growth, yeah. on the tip of the male's snout would repel insects and pests. 
They also believed that garol eggs could be an effective cough medicine and aphrodisiac. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I don't know how much that pervert, that carries on today, but this is sort of like the traditional beliefs with it. Let's round it all off with a bit of positive conservation stuff, because there is a bunch out there which is always, even when an animal's critically endangered, if you know loads of people are doing lots of things, mm -hmm. I just think there's so much hope because we have so many examples of animals being, numbers being replenished when humans have intervened in what humans have done, you yeah. know? So this bit, I think, so in the United States, gharils are kept in loads of different zoos. I won't tell you all of them because there's a bunch, but just a few is Bush Gardens in Tampa, Fort Worth Zoo, Honolulu Zoo, San Diego Zoo, a bunch of others, uh, and Fort Worth Zoo specifically, so this is in Texas, they celebrated the birth of four gharial crocodiles in June 2023. Aww. So I think the news came out in August, but it happened in June. So that's the first time in the zoo's 114-year history that that's happened. And it's only the second time such a birth has been recorded in the whole of the US. Wow. Yeah. So that was thanks to the zoo's ectotherm team, who were obviously really thrilled. They've led a decades-long conservation effort of trying to breed and hatch them. So decades of work, and then it's finally happened and that you know adds more garrals to the genetic breeding pool as well so yeah just fantastic news riverbanks of garwell river were cleared from woody vegetation on sandbanks and mid-river islands in 2019 and sand was added in 2020 to create an artificial sandbank of about a thousand meters square so that's 11,000 square foot so this intervention has actually helped to stabilize and optimize the soil temperature at the site and in 2020 the number of garwell nests on this river stretch increased to 36 from 25 in 2018 and the number of unhatched eggs and dead hatchlings decreased significantly so that's out in the field work that's being done that's helping those wild animals so it's not just in zoos yeah. so that's amazing and then just for a bit more information on the types of zoos and which zoos have the garils so as of 1999 so i don't know <laughs> you probably know better than me but garrels basically have been kept in the Madras Crocodile Bank Trust, Mysore Zoo, Jaipur Zoo, and Cook Rail Garrel Rehabilitation Centre, which are all based in India. And in Europe, garrels have been kept in Prague Zoo, Protivin Crocodile Zoo in the Czech Republic, and the Berlin Zoo in Germany. And La Ferme, or Crocodiles, a crocodile farm in France, received six juveniles in 2000 from the Garrel Breeding Centre in Nepal. All the right things are happening. Mm. People care, people are working on it, people out in the countries where garrels are found, but also people all over the world are doing a lot to try and keep the species going. Yeah. So although it is, you know, very sad that all this has happened, hopefully we will get news one day that the tide has turned and garrels are bouncing back. Just might take some time. That's amazing. Yeah. Really lovely. So obviously, Planty Planty Susie are very probably one of the zoos. <laughs> Sounds so delusional. But very happy to have garrels in our hypothetical zoo slash botanical gardens. I think that's fantastic. I too have not thought about where they'll go, as is customary. I'm very excited about the garrel habitat because whenever I go to any zoo, or sometimes aquarium, and there's any kind of alligator or crocodile or caiman or whatever, it's always one of my favourite enclosures, especially, which zoo is it? We went to one, was it Chester Zoo, where they have that amazing, you go into like this little cave, yeah, and it's like you've got a bench, you can just sit there, and then you have the big glass tank right in front of you, and you can see it above water, underwater, they're just my favourite enclosures. 
and then I really think like if I went to Chester Zoo I'd probably end up like by myself I'd just sit there for three hours because I'm very good at just sitting in yeah. one place and staring at something doing a thing I absolutely want something like that for us I really like the idea like a kind of spherical tank with like tunnels you can get into so you can maybe see them swimming above you mm. but also you just come into the centre and um, lots of nice places to sit mostly for me and uh, you can just, yeah, see this wonderful habitat, all the sandy banks. Maybe you could have, like, the water bit is sunk into the ground and you go down some steps and you can see the underneath bit. And then you go up and you can see the sandy bank bit. Yeah. Um, I think that would be amazing. I just think they're great. No, I like that. Like, a, mm. almost like a, a, like an aquarium through tunnel. Yeah. But rather than having sharks or seals or penguins like at Bristol Zoo. Yeah. Got some gharials. Yeah, exactly. That'd be delightful. I think that would be wonderful. And I, I also think I love those because I think it's such a good way for people to really understand different characteristics about mm. different species and different behaviours because you, you get to see it from all these different angles. And I just think that would be wonderful. And then you could have so much information about you know mythology and conservation. Yeah. And, yeah, wonderful. So that's a new massive tank enclosure. I guess would be in the the sort of Asian department of Plenty Plenty Zuzu. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds amazing. Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Plenty Plenty Zuzu. A slightly melancholy one. It just happened that Lou and Ryan chose two species that are all quite similar in their distributions, but also in the threats that they face out in the wild and their huge decline in numbers. But good to know that for both of those, there's actually some positive conservation work happening as well which is fantastic because as we come to the end of 2023 there's been some brilliant conservation news coming out over the past couple of months as well that's been happening this year so it's always really helpful to remember that there's actually as dark as things might seem with lots of animals facing extinction that there is actually a load of positive wildlife news coming as well loads of positive conservation news so recently we had the IUCN update that said that scimitar horned oryx are no longer go clusters extinct in the wild because of zoos like ZSL and lots of other zoological collections releasing them back into the wild in places like Chad. So they have now been downlisted to endangered, which is Amazing. incredibly exciting. Mm. Saiga antelopes have had a huge recovery and have been downlisted from critically endangered to near threatened i'm pretty sure wow. which is absolutely amazing something like a 1000 percent population increase amazing and things like the attenborough's was it long beaked echidna that's been rediscovered out in the wild mm. sand swimming mole that's been rediscovered as well so animals that were, that were thought to be extinct have been rediscovered and actually aren't um, in as much trouble as we thought yeah so Lots of positive news in and amongst some of the, the sadder news of the year as well. So quite a lot of good to go out on in 2023 as well. And hopefully we'll get even more positive conservation stories like that in 2024 as well. Mm. Hopefully you've enjoyed our very first year of podcasting. We've done 16 episodes, we've done live shows. We've now been listened to over a thousand times on Spotify alone, but think a lot more overall mm -hmm. um and yeah we're really happy with how it's gone we're so grateful to everyone who's rated reviewed subscribed follow us on instagram at plenty plenty Suzu. and yeah i hope that you will continue to join us for a lot more chats about animals and plants and all, all that good stuff we've got very exciting plans 
as always, yeah. <laughs> for the next year. Thank you so much for the support from absolutely everyone, from all of our guests as well. And we've got more guests coming up next year. We've only been going for nine months, which feels absolutely mad because we're really happy with how it's going and everything we've been able to achieve. So hopefully bigger and better things next year as well. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to be around to see those bigger and better things and get involved, please feel free to follow us on all social medias. So we're on Instagram at at Planty Planty Zoo Zoo and on X at at Planty Planty Zoo. You can also find us at our website, which is... Uh, com, and then we also have a TikTok which we're kind of experimenting with <laughs> but that's plantyplantyzuzu if you do want to join us there Fantastic Once again thank you so much Thanks for joining us in 2023 and we'll see you in 2024 Yeah Happy New Year Bye Bye